Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, our series again today is The Family of Influence, and Dr. John will be giving us a message entitled Marriage and Family. So let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 13 to 14, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. When I was a child, there was a silly little rhyme that children used to say. I'm not sure if I remember it accurately, but one of the lines said, first comes love, then comes marriage, then comes baby and a baby carriage. Now, if I recall rightly, we would say that to one of our playmates that we had caught talking with one of the girls. It was our way of teasing him. And with a red face, our friend would deny all such activity. He would say, you know, I wasn't talking to her. I just wanted to know what the teacher said was for homework or or something like that. But of course, we went right on teasing. Now, of course, children sometimes mercilessly tease each other. And I have, as an adult believer, tried to remember my own sins as a child and lay them before the altar. But I also remember that behind the teasing, there was an understanding among us as children that there was an order of things. And as we've seen within our culture, that order has collapsed. The order of love leading to marriage, leading to sexual relations, leading to children and family, that order is gone. And all of us are left trying to forge our own paths or create our own order. Now, there are all manner of reasons for that, but one of the central reasons has been the advent of the birth control pill. Now, the pill has freed the sexual act from the family. See, now you can have sex, and it won't lead to a baby carriage. And as strange as it seems to the modern ear, we know that the pill has created a new relationship with sex. Sex after the pill was not necessarily about marriage and family. It was about pleasure and about fulfilling a natural biological urge. Or it was about a couple saying, I like you. You know, in times past, that is, before the invention of the birth control pill, many a young married woman was pregnant by the end of her honeymoon. I mean, after all, she was young and fertile, and she was at a time in her life, and I sometimes say, when a smile from her husband would get her pregnant. You know, sex, even while it was desirable and pleasurable, and even though it was an act that made the two one, was the means in which God, in his great wisdom, had decided to bring the next generation into the world. Sex and children and family, well, these matters used to be so intertwined, you could hardly talk about one without the other. Of course, the Bible does speak about couples that were unable to have children, but this is called barrenness, and it was the cause of great concern. Among those women who were barren are Sarah, the wife of Abraham, Rebecca, the wife of Isaac, and Hannah, the wife of Elkanah, who you will remember eventually gave birth to Samuel. And in each of these cases, we are told that God heard the prayers of the women and in graciousness opened their wombs. And so, the ability to conceive after the sexual act was considered a great blessing of God. In the case of Hannah, her prayers in the tabernacle, that God would have mercy on her and cause her to conceive, were of such an intense variety that the priest, a man named Eli, thought that she was drunk. But God was gracious. 1 Samuel 1, 19-20 simply says, And Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. And so even while Elkanah knew Hannah, or to, to put it into our terms, even though they were enjoying marital sex, 
Hannah had not conceived. Clearly something was wrong. But in mercy, God healed what was wrong. And then when Elkanah knew her again or they enjoyed sexual relations again, she conceived. In this manner, we are to understand that the birth of Samuel is not only the answer to prayer, but it is the result of God's amazing grace. He is the fulfillment of the consummation of their marriage. See, it's hard not to see how deeply ingrained this pattern is in the Scripture. Marriage followed by sexual relations, followed by the gracious hand of God in allowing the couple to have children. And this, of course, starts at the beginning of creation. Genesis 4 verse 1 says, Now Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. And Genesis 4.17 says, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And then in Genesis 4.25, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. And so we have the foundation of the human race. By the time we come to Genesis 5, we see there's a pattern. Verse 1 says, this is the book of the generations of Adam, and with that follows a genealogy. That is to say, one marriage after another, one man after another knowing his wife, and then one family after another being visited by God in that the woman conceives. That is to say, we don't know who we are if we don't know who are the people who have gone before us and who married whom and the families that came into being. And that's not just in Genesis 5. That same wording gets repeated in Genesis 6, verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Then on to Genesis 11, verse 27. These are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Indeed, the story of the generations is foundational to understanding not only the book of Genesis, but in many ways, the entire story of the First Testament. Now, what am I getting at? For one week, I have decided to do a series in which we focus on the biblical way of living, that is, on family. God created gender, and he does so so that a man will leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. The idea of becoming one flesh cannot be divorced from the sexual act. The Bible views the sexual act in marriage as a blessing from God. It is his gift to the man and the woman. As an example, consider the fact that one entire book in the Bible, that is, the Song of Solomon, is a celebration of sexual love within marriage. The book is written by Solomon, but I don't think it's about Solomon. He writes a book celebrating the sexual love between a young husband and his young wife. The husband calls the wife the most beautiful among women, and he then, in full sexual love, describes her from her eyes to her hair, to her neck, to her breasts. He tells her that she has captivated his heart. And she responds, calling him radiant and ruddy, distinguished among ten thousands, his black hair, his, his arms which are rods of gold, and his mouth that is sweet. The Song of Solomon is the beginning of marital love replete with passion and desire. The book of Proverbs repeats some of those same themes, but with that comes a very stern and severe warning. It's a longer passage, but it should be read with a great deal of care, so I'm reading Proverbs 5, 15 to 21. It says, Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely dear, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. 
Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. There is within all of us a capacity to take this sacred gift of God and to desecrate it and make it into an evil thing. Indeed, in chapter 6, Proverbs warns the young man never to desire the beauty of another woman, for such a desire will destroy his life. But with all the frank talk of relations within marriage, why is it that often these relations are spoken of in terms of knowledge? I mean, why does it say Adam knew Eve rather than Adam had relations with Eve? And the answer seems to be that the idea of knowing assumes a level of intimacy that really is quite profound. God so designed marriage and family that it should so be that the children that come from the man and the woman come about because of a physical and a spiritual and an emotional bond of intense love. And it is this that would give rise to the next generation. While it is true that the passion of a young married couple can cool with time, it is also true that as Proverbs counsels that the young couple need to keep finding satisfaction in each other's arms. But that brings me back to the matter of children and family. You see, God so created the sexual act so that a man and a woman would bear children. And that leads some couples into a dilemma. You see, with the invention of the pill and other birth control methods and even sterilization techniques, it's now quite possible for a couple not just to be barren, but to make a conscious decision not to have children. And we've all heard the reasons. Kids are expensive. We just want a different kind of marriage that allows us the freedom to follow our own dreams. Or given all the terrible things that are happening in our world, I don't think that we want to bring children in a world like this. And then still further, I've heard some couples simply say that they don't like kids. And still others say that they like their dog or their cat, and their dog or their cat is like a child, which will get really interesting, don't you think, when they get old? I, I sure hope Rover the dog shows up and visits them in their retirement home and asks them if he can in some fashion take care of their needs. See, how important are children really? That's the question that we need to answer. After attending Dr. Neufeld's Bible teaching conference in India, pastors wrote us saying, I've decided to study God's Word diligently and apply it to my personal life. Events in Pune and Hyderabad last February were filled with capacity as Dr. Neufeld shared essential keys to excellence in Bible teaching. And now the planning process begins for the next Leaders Bible Teaching Conferences in Delhi and Hyderabad. Also, our attention in the months ahead will be given to expanding the presence of Back to the Bible India online and through mobile devices. As India experiences exponential growth in these areas, your gifts maximize the opportunity to increase daily Bible Bible teaching programs. This could and would not be possible without your support. So consider offering a generous gift for the work in India. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. How important are children? And is there a command of God regarding them in a day when it's so easy to choose not to have them? 
You know, my years of pastoral ministry, I've seen more brokenness in families than I can possibly relay. I've seen children coming forward and accusing an uncle or a family member of sexually abusing them. In most cases, it has turned out to be true. I've seen divorce and suicide and financial ruin and sickness that devastates. Sometimes godly parents weep as their children wander from the faith. I've seen children go to prison for criminal activity as parents stare at them in sheer disbelief. All of this to say, I have no naive and idealistic view of the family. I know that we live in a fallen world, and and when I say the world is fallen, I mean to say that, that nothing works the way it should. Everything is broken. Sin is more pervasive than we can imagine. But there's something else that I've seen. It seems to me that grace, I mean here, the the kindness and the compassion of God is far more pervasive than we can imagine. You know, if you're young and wondering if having children is worth the risk, you know, I commend you to the grace of God. God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, bounding in loving kindness. He sent his son to be the wrath-bearing sacrifice for us. He bore all the fury of the effects of sin in his own body so that we might be the righteousness of God in Christ. And it is for that reason that I would encourage young families not to fear, but to trust. Now, I don't mean trust that nothing bad will ever happen. But you need to trust the promise of Romans 8:28 that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes. So let's get back to families. I want to start with an unusual passage of Scripture that sometimes causes believers to scratch their heads. So what does it mean, they say? You know, I'm quoting 1 Corinthians 7, 13 to 14. It says, if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. What does that mean and and why have I chosen in a topical study on the family to speak of this text? Well, first, I want you to notice that the term holy, and the Greek word is hagiatso, it can be used in a specialized sense. It can mean the separation of people from their pagan environment. Now, 1 Corinthians 7 doesn't say that non-Christian spouses or children, for that matter, are saved because of their association with a saved person living in their home but they do come under that believer's influence so that they are separated from the experience that others have. They have the experience of being instructed in the faith and seeing the faith modeled in front of them. Let me share an example. You know, years ago, I was leading an evangelistic Bible study in which I had 12 non-Christians all agreeing to study the basics of the Christian faith with me. You know, one of the 12 was a young man in his early 30s, and I'm going to call him Fred, and he started out by saying, how do you answer the charge that Christianity is just a crutch? Wishful thinking for people who can't face reality. And wow, that was starting out as a very rough Bible study. But before I could answer, one of the 12, also a young man in his early 30s, responded. I'll call this second man Charlie. And Charlie turned to Fred and said, you know, Fred, I've heard that kind of BS all my life. In fact, I've said the same thing. You know what? My wife just became a Christian, and I got to say it's nothing short of amazing. She's become a different woman, and frankly, I like it, and I'm intrigued, and I'm here not to rehash the same tired arguments you and I have heard for a lifetime. I'd like to know what's behind all of this. 
<laughs> wow, that was a beginning of a Bible study. And that's exactly what 1 Corinthians 7, 13 to 14 promises us. The unbeliever is separated out from everyone else because of his or her believing spouse. Now, follow the logic. Of all the children in the world, if you're a believer, your children are holy, they are separated out from the rest of the world. They have a mother and a father who love God and pray earnestly for them. They model the life of Christ. They open their Bibles and teach them. They take time to bring them to church. They, they enroll them in Sunday school and youth programs and expose them to a vibrant faith and plead with God that he would send the Holy Spirit and draw them to the cross. See, these kids are set apart from all the other children in the world. Their experience is unique, and they are uniquely blessed. Now, having said all of that, let me come full circle. When I began today's program, I talked about the invention of the birth control pill, which can separate the act of sex from the conceiving of family, children, and generations. The pill introduced a view of sex which changed our understanding of the Creator's design. But God created male and female. Gender was his idea. He said he did so that he might bind a man and a woman together in marriage and that the two would become one flesh. And then out of that one flesh intimacy, God so designed things that children should grace the young married couple's lives. Now, yesterday, in order to impress upon us the importance of marriage, I quoted Malachi chapter 2, 13 to 14. Let me read it again. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and the wife by covenant. Now, that's what I quoted yesterday, but today, let me add to that by reading the next verse. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? In other words, what was God after when he created first gender and then second marriage? When he made the two one, what was God up to? Why did God do that? What was he seeking? See, are you ready for the answer? It's there in Malachi 2.15. What was the one God seeking? Drum roll, please. Are you listening? Here's the answer godly offspring. That's the answer. God created godly men and women so that Christian men and women would live their lives in the context of marriage and that out of marriage would come families and in the context of families would come the heritage of the faith to the next generation. Let me tell you my story. My grandmother was an exceptionally godly woman. Her husband, my grandfather, was put to death by the communists in Russia when my dad was but a young lad. My grandmother never lost faith in God. Indeed, in the years of famine and starvation, her praying hands and her undying faith kept her family alive and kept the faith alive when the society around her was teaching a state-sanctioned atheism. Her remarkable courage and clear view of God's hand in her life infused faith into my father when the culture around him was telling him that the idea of God was an invention of the bourgeoisie to keep the proletariat from caring about their immediate plight. They were told not to worry about injustice. Everything would be fine in heaven. Religion, they were being told in the public schools, prevents progress and keeps people from their destiny. 
Now, those were powerful intellectual arguments that, that my grandmother had never studied, but she trusted in God for the salvation of her children. I'm a product of her faith. My story is not done. Just last week, as I was sitting with my young grandson, his parents had got him a book, and it's a, it's a kind of a comic book, and it tells the whole story of the Bible. So we sat together, and I was trying to help him understand in detail the stories of the Bible. And he said, Opa, when I grow up, I want to preach with you. Would you let me? Now, I'm of the opinion I might be too old for that, but perhaps not. So I said, Corin, if God allows it, you and I are going to share a pulpit. Now, why am I telling you this? Well, my grandmother and my grandfather had children in a country when communists were taking over and where they were announcing that Christianity was over. But they believed that Psalm 127, 3 to 5 was true. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Indeed, such is the heritage that God calls us to. Young man and young woman, pray for a godly spouse. Get married, have children, train them in the Lord, and you will stand with confidence when you face your enemies in the gate. Now, I know, I know that all this stuff about child raising, you know, that it costs money and diapers and schooling and then the teenage years, I mean, the list goes on and on. But I am for this week calling the church back to think about their lives in a Christ-directed way, instructed by the scripture. Let's not be afraid to live the way that Christ wants us to. John, as we think about your message today, uh, we want to consider maybe a little bit about having children. Like, is it the role and the purpose for couples to have children? Is that their goal? Is there exceptions to that? What is the common thing that you would think brings that together? Yeah, I mean, there will always be couples who are unable to have children, and so we want to acknowledge that. Um, there may be some situations where a couple might decide not to have them, but I would think that that would be an exception. And I would always argue very strongly that for couples to say, you know, we really want to see the world, we want economic freedom, all those kind of things, we are placing our own comfort and our, our own emphasis upon self and indulging the flesh ahead of other matters, and that itself should raise a warning flag. Uh, we are not created for just simply enjoying ourselves. We are created to bring benefit to others. And so I think we need to think about those things. Thanks so much, John. And join us again tomorrow as we continue our series right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. This is what Christian leaders are saying about Donald Whitney's book, Family Worship. It's a practical guide for parents, especially fathers, to get from what we should to what we can and do. This book will equip you to lead your family in worship without fear. This book could change your home. What is modeled and experienced in the home shapes lives. So Back to the Bible Canada is making the book Family Worship available to our listeners for free the same month Dr. Newfeld is teaching his new series, Family of Influence. We want to do all we can to equip you and your family to be all God has designed you to be. So make sure to listen and ask for your free copy of Family Worship today. And if you're able, consider supporting this ministry with your prayers and a financial gift. The generosity of people right across Canada make this program possible. 
Call today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.